Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Hi, it's AJ Vaden, and thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. I am so excited for you to meet Vanessa Van Edwards. We shared the stage at what I believe is the largest speaking event in the world. It's the biggest one that I know of. It's called the Global Leadership Summit. And we got to share the stage. And, you know, most of you know, I'm, I'm a nerd for technical speaking and built my career coming out of Toastmasters. And she got up and talked about her book, Captivate, and some of the concepts that she studies. She's the founder of a company called The Science of People. And her book is called Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People. And she analyzes and studies body language and interpersonal communication and human behavior and relationships. And it was just so practical and applicable to everybody. The audience went nuts. I was also tracking book sales. So I haven't shared this with everybody. I was watching book sales with, there's three different tools that we're using to monitor that. And I was watching uh, Vanessa's book which was selling, apparently from what we could tell, was the top selling book from all the speakers who were there, which is exciting and also a little bit nerve wracking since our book was also for sale. <laughs> yeah, but, but you got pre-sales. You got pre-sales. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. So anyways, the other thing to know about her, in, in addition to being this best-selling author, she's very much into data, which I love, and, and research and science and analyzing, you know, her craft. But she's also spoken, obviously, at the Global Leadership Summit. She's spoken at South by Southwest, Google, Facebook, and she has a TED Talk as well that is called You Are Contagious that also is gone viral. So she's got over a couple million views on that within just a few years. So anyways, we're talking to a pro and I was like, gotta have her. You guys are going to love her. So welcome to the show, Vanessa. Woohoo. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk and dive in. So I want to start with your actual work, like mm -hmm. what you actually teach, because it's super relevant to our audience. And, you know, we'll put a link to your TED talk. You are contagious in the show notes, but can you give us you know, so a lot of our audience speaks, all of our clients speak, we teach them that the spoken word is the number one marketing tool there is. So whether it's free webinars or free speaking, like I spoke for free 304 times, that was how I started my career. And that we eventually turned that into an eight figure business all by speaking for free. But you 
study a lot of, you know, a lot of your craft relates to speaking and you analyzed TED Talks. What are some of the things that you learned from the viral TED Talks, the successful TED Talks and the, the not so viral ones? Yeah, you know, I was really intrigued as a speaker on why some TED Talks go viral and others don't. And what I, when I was searching on the TED website, I, I typically watch a TED Talk every day at lunch. I found that there were TED Talks, you know, like Simon Sinek's TED Talk has millions of views. Never and heard of I them. noticed, yeah, no, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed when I was on the website that there was a very similar talk that came out the same month of the same year, it was released the same month of the same year on TED.com. A very similar topic, both 18 minutes long, except that Simon's had millions and millions and millions of views, and this other talk had less than 40,000. And I wondered why. These were both experts, relatively unknown experts before their TED Talks, by the way. Sure. But something about Simon's talk made it explode. It went viral. And so we decided to analyze thousands of hours of TED Talks. We looked at every TED Talk in 2010, and we split them up based on view count. So the most popular TED Talks versus the least popular TED Talks. And we didn't- You looked at, wait, you looked at every TED Talk since 2010? In 2010. Oh, in 2010. Oh my goodness, you crazy. Oh, wow. Okay. I was like, <laughs> I'd still be doing that. <laughs> yeah. That's tough. Yeah. yeah. And also, by the way, this was maybe four or five years ago now. So we looked at every, every TED Talk that was released in 2010, right? There's a limited number that go on TED.com. And we didn't know what we would find, right? We were looking at all the variables. I was looking at color of clothing. I was looking at entrance. I was looking at um, smiles. We actually clocked the number of seconds that they smiled. And we found that the biggest difference, you could actually see it when you put these talks side by side, was that the most popular TED Talkers used an average of 470 gestures, 465 gestures to be precise, in 18 minutes. Whereas mm. the least popular TED Talkers, by view count, used an average of 272 gestures in 18 minutes. Almost half. And when I looked at this, I realized there was sort of two things happening. One is hands show trust. They show intention. We like to see hands, right? The moment sure. we can see someone's hands, we feel like we understand them a little bit more. But the second thing was even more important, which was when we know our content exceptionally well, we can actually explain it on two tracks. We can explain it with our words, but we can also explain it with our gestures. And so the very best TED Talkers, it was like they had a two-track talk. They had the verbal talk and they had the gesture talk. And what was amazing about it was that it allowed you to have sort of these memory hooks. When someone said they had three ideas and they held up the number three, the brain would actually wait. You'd wait to hear all three. And that would also help you remember those three. So I think what was happening is that the really memorable, amazing TED Talks just make it easy to be understood. Interesting. And so would you say that Brene Brown and Simon Sinek and you know, Dan Pink, yeah, Sir Ken Robinson, do they all pass that test or are some of them outliers? No, everyone passed the test. The only kind of odd outlier in our data that we looked at was Jamie Oliver. So there is, the is a little, yeah, the chef. Yeah, yeah. His oh, okay. So what's really interesting is most really charismatic speakers, they use hand gestures in a purposeful way. So if they're talking about something big, they, they show you how big it is. Is it beach ball big or is it, you know, what ball would this be? Like, like a, you know, sumo, a sumo, sumo wrestler ball big. big. Like how big is it? Or is it really small and little and just between the two fingers? Whereas Jamie Oliver, his talk is so passionate 
that he's actually just making gestures for no reason. He's just shaking his hand <laughs> a lot. So that one I found a little distracting. Now he had a lot of gestures because he was literally just, he would walk, or he was pacing the stage and just kind of moving his hands. That was the one exception where I thought, hmm, I think that we, we like the purposeful gesture the distracted gesture makes someone look out of control. So I, whenever I teach hand gestures, I like to teach it on a spectrum that purposeful is what we're going for. Jazz hands is not what we're going for. Or even I created some hand gesture monsters in my career, and I feel very bad about this. So I taught this research and a couple of students in one of my classes, they thought that I meant like modern dance. So I saw their speeches after my class and then they came on like this. Today, I want to talk to you about a big idea. <laughs> and the sun is going to come out. I mean, it was like itsy bitsy spider, you know, like uh -huh. with like the hand gestures. Like interpretive dance, like yeah. full. And so purposeful is good, but like we're not talking modern dance. I think that with Ken Robinson and Brene Brown and Simon Sinek, they probably didn't script out their hand gestures. And I don't think that we should necessarily either, but we should be so comfortable with our work that we're able to understand it and explain it visually. So gestures, so that's really interesting because it's like where you saw the pattern wasn't the type of gesture or like, yeah, it wasn't like the type of gesture. It was the volume of gestures and basically twice as many. So that, that tells us that, that humans are nonverbal, which we kind of, we know instinctually, right? It's like, of course we're nonverbal. So for an audience of people who are speakers or aspiring speakers or potentially speakers, in addition to gestures, are there any other big kind of salient discoveries that you would point to and say, oh my gosh, if you are speaking a lot, here's another thing that you really need to know. Like you can't miss this. And I know, you know, in Captivate, you talk about voice and you talk about facial expressions. Like in the book, you go through a bunch of different ones, but for the speakers. I'm going to give one that isn't in the book. Give one okay, that is yeah, the book. yeah, yeah. Give us one that's not in the book. The book is there if you want to read it. That's great. But I want to give one that's just for speakers because I love talking to audience and speakers. So one thing that I noticed, not only in the TED speeches, but also in with working with students is the really, really powerful speakers use the stage as a content aid. And this is a really advanced technique, but once you get it, I think it's, it's like you can immediately apply it, which is you want to know where you're going to plant. And that's really important. Where are you going to deliver your first line or your first impression? So your first impression happens either the moment the lights turn on, the moment you walk on stage. The more purposeful you all are with that plant, like I'm going to walk right to the center of the stage, that makes your walk more purposeful. I notice that speakers who don't have a plant, they kind of wander onto stage they kind of wander and they're a little awkward and they then they don't quite plant. They kind of they kind of pivot back and forth. Whereas mm -hmm. speakers who walk out to that plant, that's one of the reasons why that TED Talk red circle carpet is so brilliant, is it just gives speakers a, a piece of confidence is this is where you stand. Can you so explain that? Not everybody knows about what the red dot means, like what it is. Yeah. So in, in TED Talks, one of the secret ways I think that they've had so much power with their videos is they have a small red circle. And I think that every franchise of TED Talk, they have to have a red carpet on stage mm -hmm. as part of the requirement. And they even have a measurement that they like it to be. And it's actually a brilliantly measured carpet. I think of the red, that circle carpet when I speak without it, like when I just do regular speeches, because it's a plant. So you have someone who walks right out on the stage, they plant in that red circle, and then you're not supposed to leave that red circle 
So they, they really don't like you to leave it for the cameras, for the lights. I think that Mel Robbins and her TED Talk, she not only left her circle, she actually walked out into the audience. It was a very, it was very, it was a very, you know, avant-garde move. And she wasn't supposed to do it, but I think it worked for her. So the first thing is to know where you're going to plant. Have an imaginary red carpet for yourself. And then you want to use the stage as a transition for your content. So for example, okay, I tend to deliver right in the middle. I typically go right to the middle when I speak. And then when I'm talking science or background, I typically go to the left side of the stage and I plant and I deliver the science. When you say the left side of the stage, are you saying stage left or the audience is left? Stage left. So to the right, the audience is right, stage left. Okay. So I, I stand there and then when I'm pivoting or transitioning topics, I literally show the audience I'm doing it with a a physical movement. And then by the end, they know when I'm on the right side of stage, I'm usually telling a story. I'm doing something fun. I'm leading an interaction. When I'm in the center of the stage, I'm delivering something super important. And I usually save my super important takeaway challenges. Remember this for the center of the stage and my science and background on the other side. And I've noticed that it helps people as they take notes I've noticed it helps with attention. I've also noticed you have certain people, you know, very warm people who like the stories better. And so everyone needs moments where they're going to tune out. An audience is going to tune out. I would rather it be based on their learning style than not based on their learning style. I'd rather choose it. So what I've noticed is very warm people who love stories and examples, they perk up when I get to the right side of the stage. Mm. And my science heavy, my high competent folks, my data heads, they perk up when I get to the left-hand side. And usually everyone perks up for the middle. So it's a, that's one of the really big things that I think excellent speakers do to help their audience. Yeah, that's what's interesting about you know, using the stage. But in TED Talks, you can't because of the red dot. But they force you to plant and be powerful by having that confined space. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's super interesting. Is there anything you did on the marketing front related to your TED Talk that made it go viral? Like... Oh, yes. <laughs> so I've, it's a lot of pressure when you study TED Talks that go viral and then you give a TED Talk. Yeah, it's that's a lot, a lot of pressure. pressure. <laughs> pressure. Basically, you have to then give a viral TED Talk. So I was very nervous about it. And uh, the first thing was the title. And I argued with them about this, by the way. Like we went back and forth on this a lot. Now, it's kind of funny because it's your contagious, which right now in our current state of the world, it's getting a lot of views for a different reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that ended up working in a different way. Yeah. And you'll notice that there's a lot of comments, recent comments where people are like, I really thought this talk was about something else, but I really liked it. <laughs> so anyway, That's in the great. beginning, I, I wanted a command. I wanted a title that was a command. You have, you have a bunch of people worried about contracting COVID that are buying the Captivate book and just uh, <laughs> sitting at home reading it. It's great. <laughs> It's perfect. Actually, Captivate sales have been up a lot in COVID. And so one, I wanted a command. I wanted to have um, like a you or um, like a personal pronoun. So I really wanted to have like a you are contagious or you are confident or you can do it or you are powerful. I wanted something that was a command because I noticed that a lot of the TED Talks that were out there weren't. They were very intellectual. They were very much like the future of leadership or how thinking will change the future of humanity. Like there are a lot of like talks like that, which is fine, but I just wanted to be different, right? I wanted to have a different thing. So I wanted to use the word you, I knew that. And I wanted- Did you analyze titles? 
by the way, or only the gestures and like the actual presentation? I did. We didn't formally analyze titles. No, I should. That would be fun though. That would be a really easy one to do actually with like, you just put them all in a big spreadsheet and look at them. That'd be super interesting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that, and then once it came out, not only did I share it, of course, across socials, um, you know, YouTube has been a big driver of our business. I've been on YouTube since 2007 when people thought it was like, you know, a joke. And one thing that we've learned is playlists are really important. So we did a huge campaign on the back end to get my TED talk, not embedded in websites that I didn't care about as much, but to get it on people's playlists. And so we reach out to influencers, but also just friends who watch a lot of YouTube videos and ask them to put it on a relevant playlist with other videos that we thought people would like along with our TED talk with the right search engine title. So for example, I reached out to a a friend of mine who has a a podcast and I asked him if he would add my video to his playlist called Human Behavior Hacks. He was like, sure. And then it was immediately placed contextually. So I know on YouTube, your best, you have two options for for your game. One is search and YouTube search is very different than Google search. We use a tool called Ahrefs. And so when I'm titling my blogs, I use Ahrefs for Google. When I'm titling my YouTube videos and my keywords, I use Ahrefs for YouTube because they have very, very different search. And so I knew what kind of YouTube search that I wanted for the video, but I also knew what I wanted it to be related to. So the second thing that you really like for YouTube to elevate your game is watch this next or when your video is listed alongside another video. And so it's critical to have YouTube's algorithm know what other videos people would like. And so I had a list of a hundred or more videos that I thought were the perfect audience for my TED talk. And so uh, very quickly we were able to scale and we got thousands and thousands of views and then millions of views based on, I think the placement of relevant videos. So when you found a hundred videos, a list of a hundred videos that you thought were like your perfect audience, did you reach out to those people at all? Not Typically, actually a lot of them were other TED Talks, but I wanted to be on the same playlist as those videos. So for example, like if I really liked Alan Pease, Alan Pease is a wonderful author about body language and he has a great TED Talk. He also has some great stage talks that have millions of views. I didn't need to reach out to Alan because his videos are living on other people's playlists, but I did want to get on people who listed Alan's video in their playlists. Does that make sense? So how do you know which people have Alan Pease on their playlist? Um, you can see it. So when you watch his video, you can see, it'll say like, oh, this is recommended for you. And then you can see that it's actually within someone else's playlist. Interesting. So just on the video itself, mm-hmm. which is like a video you're probably watching because you're interested in it anyways, you would just go, oh, okay, I see like this other recommended video lives on so-and-so's channel. And so that person is featuring this kind of content. And then you, so it was more like you didn't contact Alan, you contacted the person that had Alan's video on his channel. And they never get contacted. Alan gets contacted all the time. Plus Alan doesn't own his YouTube, his Ted talk. So it's not even on, he couldn't even control if he wanted to. So I don't need to bother Alan with it. He's a busy guy. But some of the people who have created these amazing playlists who love looking for relevant videos on body language or human behavior or psychology, those are my people. And I love reaching out to them. And they're also thrilled when I reach out to them. So that's how we've grown our YouTube channel uh, quite a bit since from the beginning. That is fascinating. What a super awesome tip. Well, and this is kind of what I wanted to get into as well was a little bit about how how you've built such a great business because it's like once you 
have a best-selling book and you're speaking at GLS and you have a viral TED talk, like you're checking off a lot of the marks of like pretty big time personal brands, which is, which is super exciting. Clearly the TED talk has been huge. Is that how GLS found you? Do you know? Did you ask them? I didn't ask them. I think that they just knew about me from YouTube. I think that they found me from YouTube. So I don't know if that was my TED Talk or other YouTube videos that I had, but that's where they came to me from, seeing those videos. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me. To this day, the number one cold way that we book high-paid speaking engagements is someone will say, I saw your video on YouTube. 100%. Um, same, yeah. same here. Which is crazy because you, you know, it's almost like people put YouTube and Twitter in the same category in terms, and it's like, they're completely different, like completely different purposes, completely different audiences. Yeah. And the way I like to think about it, and this is what I, what I try to talk to my students about is Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and even LinkedIn are social media platforms. YouTube is a search engine and that's how you have to think about it. Yes, it's relatively social, but it is a search engine. So you need to think about it just like you think of Google. You need to study your keywords just like you do for Google. You need to think about your content like little mini blogs. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing, like literally is that content on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, the older it is, the less valuable it is. On YouTube and Google, the older it is, the more valuable it is. Like it's it's a complete inverse it's such a key distinction. YouTube is something I'm loving you talking about this because I feel like I've ignored YouTube like my oh. entire career. And then, you know, we had a few thousand subscribers. And then when we exit our last company, that was gone. So, you know, like we're starting all over and YouTube is the one that I'm going, this is the one that we have missed the boat on. This is the one that drives like real big time revenue, big time credibility. And it sounds like you agree with that. Yeah, I completely agree with it. And the good news is, is you got time. You know, it's still the wild west on YouTube, I think. I actually think it's less tapped even than online courses. You know, I got into YouTube in 2007. It's older. I got into my first online course in 2011, 2012. And even now, I feel like online course is a little bit tapped. I mean, there's just a lot of opportunity there. But um, you mean you launching an online course? Launching, teaching, hosting, yeah, online right. courses, you know, like it's not that the boat has sailed, but like it's an existing ecosystem, right? Like it exists, you can tap into it, but you really got to work it. YouTube, I think, is a lot of low hanging fruit. I think you have time, even though it's an older, it's an older beast. The amount of video that people are consuming and the bond that you build with people when they watch a video is incredible. And as a speaker and as an influencer, someone who wants to change behavior or change minds, it's like you're getting permission to go into someone's bedroom. Email box, you get to their desk. Not as intimate. A YouTube video, you get into their bedrooms. Even a podcast, you maybe get to their kitchen or their gym. But a bed is usually YouTube. I don't mean that in a weird way, but like it's so intimate when you're with someone and you're sharing a story that they really feel like, wow, I know her. I cannot tell you how many times I'm walking down the street and people are like, I love your YouTube. I feel like you're my friend. <laughs> no, and that's, that's a very special thing. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. So Mike Todd was one of the other speakers with us. Did you get to see his speech? At yeah. TLS? yeah. I loved it. I thought it was so great. And so AJ and I are watching his sermon series on relationship goals and we either watch it in bed or the living room couch. But to what you're saying, both of those are, that's very intimate that's intimate space and intimate locations. Mm -hmm. And I've never really thought about that. I've always thought about the podcast being right in someone's ear, which is very intimate, but 
You know, you don't make a date to to listen to a podcast, but you will sit down and like, all right. Or have you ever seen the show The Chosen on YouTube? No. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. It's It's a TV series that's only available on YouTube and it's free, but it's like we make a date to sit down and watch something on YouTube. Yeah. I think that that's the difference, right? Like when I am listening to my podcasts, I am always doing something else. And even if I wasn't doing something else, I begin to, I fold clothes, I do yeah. laundry, I clean up the toys in the living room. Like I'm always, I'm like, it's a thing where my hands are free. Not with YouTube. If I'm going to watch a video, it's my ears and my eyes. And there's not much else I can do. I have to be locked in with you. And so it's just a much more intimate and Billing experience. There's a reason I haven't done a podcast yet. I mean, maybe I will one day, but it's because um, I also know that I, the biggest, so in our business, our um, revenue is sort of split between speaking online courses and then a little bit of like ad revenue. And we don't do any paid search. We only have organic search. And I know that the best way for me to sell courses is to get organic YouTube search that turns into an online email subscriber that then turns into a, a buy of our video course. And so if I want to sell a video course, the best way for me to do that is being on video. Yeah. So let me ask you that. This is so awesome. Okay. So when you say organic YouTube search, most of that is just basically like optimizing your video as a blog post on YouTube. So you're showing up in search yes. and then in the description, you're driving people to a lead, a lead capture, which is going to then nurture like a lead magnet. And then yeah. that'll nurture them for the course. When you do, when you sell courses, do you do mostly like a video? Do you do mostly like video sales letters, like a video funnel, like you know, three videos and then buy on the fourth video? Or do you yeah, more like yeah. a one long webinar kind of thing? So we've tested all of them. <laughs> Feels like all of them. We've tested the three videos to a purchase. We've tested a webinar to a, a 60 minute webinar to a purchase. We've tested a 20 minute webinar to a purchase. We've tested a six email written series. We've uh-huh. tested sneak previews. We've tested an audio training. The one that doesn't work very well is three videos. We have too much dripping in the funnel, too much, too much loss. When we find that when people want it, they want it. So we don't want to make them wait. So the best thing that we found is either an audio training for 60 minutes right away or like a webinar for 45 to 60 minutes right away. Video. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, where should people go if they want to connect with you and like learn more? Obviously they can get the book Captivate, which is awesome. We'll put, we'll put a link to your contagious, you are contagious TED talk. Where else, Vanessa, if they want to learn more about all the stuff you do? Yeah. If you want to see our funnel in action, I recommend going to scienceofpeople.com slash join. That will be whatever our latest opt-in is. And so you'll be able to see if you go to that, like sometimes it's our likability training, which is the audio training, which also eventually converts into our big course, or you'll get one of our webinars. And so that's a really good way, A, to get kind of acquainted with some of our materials and our free courses, but also if you are interested in sort of the funnel of the back end of how we build rapport and build relationships and teach to sell, you can also see it that way as well. Love it. Scienceofpeople.com slash join. You can go there. We'll link that up in the show notes. Vanessa, thank you so much. You've been so generous and like tactical and just it's such actionable stuff, particularly for personal brands. So we wish you very much the very best. Oh my gosh. I'm so grateful. Thanks for featuring my story and thanks everyone for listening. That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. 
So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free lifetime access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we will get you set up with free lifetime access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, please just share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation.